There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that, whilst emanating directly from the discipline, have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Do you ever forget where you've put things or wonder what you're doing in a certain room? And then you remember where you left what you couldn't find and why you went to the room you did and smile at your own forgetfulness and carry on. But what if you couldn't remember? On today's podcast, our topic is living with dementia, and I have the privilege of discussing this topic with Dr. Ryan Fuller and Bev Cohen. Ryan is a psychiatrist. He's the founder and senior clinician at the Memory Care Group Medical Practice from 2012 to date, also involved with the memory clinics at Akiso Clinic Park Town and Akiso Clinic Alberton. He has a certificate of specialist training in general adult liaison and old age psychiatry obtained in the UK, although he completed his undergraduate medical training at UCT and being a Vitsi, I shall not hold that against you. Um, you. <laughs> Bev is the founder of Silver Lining, a Johannesburg-based organization that focuses on those who suffer from dementia. Bev has been actively involved for the past six years and together with her associate Susan Cohen, they run groups, visit various facilities, as well as do private home visits. And to quote, they want sufferers to feel they have a place where they can feel comfortable and very importantly, I think, and carers have a little respite. Ryan and Bev, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I chose the title of today's episode in terms of living with to capture not just the lived experience of the person with dementia, but also the lived experience of loved ones and caregivers who are witness to, affected by and involved with the sufferer, the burden of the condition. And certainly for the next episodes, there will be a theme of, 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 of living with as we discuss various psychiatric conditions. But before we get into our conversation, and aside from my brief introductory comments, I thought I would ask each of you to, in your own words, speak to your involvement with uh, sufferers. Ryan, we'll start with you, and then we'll move to Bev. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us in. It's a privilege being here. Um, I wish we did more of this. Uh, this awareness education is so important. Um, I became involved in caring for older people in psychiatry um, because I was fascinated by the combination, the connection between medical conditions, physical, if you like, and psychological impact. And then, as you said, also the impact systemically. Mm. So I think similar to child and adolescent psychiatry, unless you've got a systemic orientation, um, it's very difficult to help people with this chronic uh, problem because they live at home and they are going to, unfortunately suffer in certain ways, and you need the family to help you. So um, we know that this is not a simple condition to diagnose. Um, we know, unfortunately, there isn't an effective disease-modifying treatment, right. but we manage it. Mm -hmm. No different to managing diabetes, hypertension, which, if we think about it, isn't really cured in that sense. No. Um, and so the motto really is, is striving to be with the person. So I'm really... Um, touched by what you said now, living with, and to be with the patient, to be with the family, to mm. be with the clinician, mm. perhaps other healthcare providers who are trying to assist, because it affects people in different ways. Um, so I found that over time, um, there has been a bit less stigma, 
and doing things like this, which is welcome. <coughs> and we were chatting off air about not speaking about dementia, as it were, but right. rather major neurocognitive disorder. And then trying to understand the link between Alzheimer's and dementia is, is so important. Um, just chatting off air with a lady from the Eastern Cape who flew all the way up to Johannesburg right. to help her uh, husband. And I said, you know, we can do this by Zoom. We don't, you don't have to fly. But she really wanted to come and be with us because she wanted to know what to do. Um, and most of our time was spent managing that back in the Eastern Cape with her. Um, we, did, we managed the medical aspects, the depression, anxiety. We talk about the cognitive uh, challenge there with, men, with certain meds. But really it's about finding ways to communicate, which is mm -hmm. a challenge for us. I think. Yeah. And I think what's very important about what you've said is this whole issue of systemic. It's a system. Mm -hmm. And I think that very often, and I was alluding to that again off air before we started recording, about the focus being on the sufferer. But the sufferer emerges from within a context. And I think unless one has a, a, a clear understanding of the context, who's who, so to speak, um, you don't necessarily get a full picture of how best to intervene. Because the focus being purely on one person should not ignore the fact that they come from within a system. And I think we do have to understand the systems. And I suppose because of my own work with eating disorders and with adolescent psychiatry, I have been very involved with families. Mm. Mm. And it's critical. And, you know, the one thing that I used to say to all of my trainees, you've got to get the context. You cannot lose the context. Otherwise, you're looking at somebody purely in isolation. You're looking at a checklist of symptoms. You're making a diagnosis. And then you're operating kind of in a limited way unless you understand the context. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I could say to you that an adolescent depression, so we're moving into a different spectrum, but just for mm -hmm. the purposes of illustration, unless you understand the context, you might not understand why they're feeling depressed. You can make a tick box diagnosis, suddenly they're on antidepressants, but you've missed the boat mm. because you haven't understood the context. What are the causative, what are the contributory, and also what are the healing factors that you need to work with? So, Bev, enough of me because you're the guest. And so what about your journey towards where you've landed up? So what happened is I actually was not working, and um, I was very, I've was i been very involved with the Union of Jewish Women for over 40 years, right. and they decided six years ago that they needed a place to offer to people with dementia, Alzheimer's, any kind of um, uh, condition, brain condition, to come along and um, have a place of safety and give the carers a bit of a respite. Right. So we started that group six years ago, and up until COVID in 2019, we had about 18 people joining our group. And when I saw that it was going so well, I thought, you know what? Let's start a little business. Mm. So my mother happened to be at Silwood Lodge. So I happened to speak to um, Trish, the lady that um, runs the place. And I said, would you be interested in me coming in here to do some exercises or some stimulation yeah. with your residents? And she said, fantastic. That went well fantastically. And then we thought, you know what? Let's start another little group. And so we started another little group on a Wednesday morning. And at the moment, we've got about, well, we stopped during COVID, but yes. now we've started again, and we've got 12, around about 12 people joining us. And honestly, it's become like a place of safety, stimulation, socialization, and plenty of laughter. Mm. Tell me, how often do these groups operate? So, we run them every week. I run, I, yeah, so, Tuesday morning, I do a group at the Unit of Jewish Women. Wednesday, I do a group at the uh, church in Orchards. Right. And then... We're at Silwood Lodge, and we do have our private home visits as well. So one of the things, because I'm going to deviate completely now, but one of the problems with groups is the consistency of the group. 
and the attendance on a regular basis. So are you finding that the groups are holding the participants? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had one or two that have kind of felt uncomfortable and they haven't come back. Right. But um, generally I have the same people coming all the time. And they've become friends. It's it's, it's actually quite fascinating to watch. Okay, so… I actually heard one lady the other day telling this other lady her whole life story. Hmm. And it was just so interesting to hear. So now as a matter of interest, because I'm just getting into it now, how do you screen for participation in the group? Because obviously we're dealing, and Ryan and I are going to get into some of the technical aspects around neurocognitive issues. Um, how do you screen out? Because obviously there's a range of yeah, deficit in absolutely. terms of cognition. How do you screen that out? Or how do you get some kind of group consistency and ultimately group cohesion? Well, it's it's actually quite difficult because our ages range from early 50s to 92. Now, you see, I just want to jump in quickly. I mean, early 50s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not going to age myself, but I mean, there was a time where that was inconceivable. Mm-hmm. We never saw that. Mm-hmm. We never, and, ma- and maybe you and I, Ryan, can get into mm-hmm. that specifically. Mm-hmm. But for our purposes of, of the question, okay, so you've got quite a broad well, range. Yeah. So how do they gel? Funny enough, they do. I, I don't think they actually look at each other because of the age. I had, I've got one gentleman that's kind of, his partner was wanting to come, but the age was a problem. Right. But um, suddenly I've, I've had two, two new uh, um, people coming this last week, in the, one in early 50s, one early 60s. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, they, oh, they just all come along. They sit down. Mm-hmm. We make them feel as comfortable as we can. Right. We find out what they like, what they dislike. And um, the morning just carries on. If they're not able to answer, we, we help them. We help them. We give them the answer. Right. Just we try not make them feel any different. What is the duration in terms of time of a group? Is two it one hour, hour, two hours? Two hours, Okay. Yeah. So you normally find that that kind of is where the uh, yeah, threshold lies? And we, yeah, it's more than enough. Um, we have like a 20-minute tea break. And the, the first 15 minutes, they also come in and do their own thing. Right. And then we find mm. out what they like to do. And then we have a program. Sometimes it doesn't work, and then we just change it up. And we always make sure that we have music because we found that music just mm-hmm. just what kind brings of music? anything from pop to right. classics to opera to Afrikaans songs. Jan Pirovit, that is their favorite. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, well, that's, that's, that is interesting. <laughs> you know, they get up, they dance. You know, it's it's amazing. As so I was saying to Ryan earlier on, I mm. I had a lady that came whose speech she really could not get any words out of her mouth. We put on the music, the, the words just flowed. It was it was so fascinating to watch. Mm. Well, I think that has been quite well mm. described in terms of the ability to sing mm. versus mm. speak. Speak. Absolutely. So there is something interesting yeah. neurological that that happens there. Okay, so I'm I'm going to flip back to Ryan because I want to get just a little bit more technical mm-hmm. in terms of because I mean we use the the term dementia very broadly, um, and we almost use the term dementia and Alzheimer's interchangeably as if mm. they are one and the same thing. But that is in fact technically not the case. Mm. Um, now, psychiatry and specifically the DSM-5, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That's the fifth version. It's got, as I said, a more technical approach regarding dementia. In fact, they don't mention dementia. It's more around major and mild neurocognitive disorders. And there are clearly a range of specified conditions that cause these disorders, of which Alzheimer's is but one. And I think that's important to understand. Alzheimer's is one cause of Neurocognitive deficit. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that, Ryan? Yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. It's a, the, probably the commonest question I get asked. Uh, exactly that. Um, so we call it a syndrome dementia, and we say that there isn't a single. There are many conditions, as you said, that can make those up. Um, Alzheimer's tends to account for about seventy to eighty percent across 
all um, groups around the world, um, which is interesting. Um, the next most common is vascular uh, dementia, where we then try and explain to people you either have a protein problem or a plumbing problem. Right. So the P's sometimes help them. The protein we talk about, we do a brief explanation of the brain is composed of neurons. And did you know that there are approximately 80 billion neurons compressed into about half a centimeter in the it's cortex? It's incredible, actually. And each one talks another one about 10 to 20,000 times. So there's more elementary connections in the brain than there are sort of particles in the universe. And okay. So we stop and go, God is great. And, and we do that to say to people that you can lose a couple of neurons and still function. Right. Like as if you had a stroke and you have a disability, it doesn't mean your brain is going to stop working. You use all of your brain all the time. That mm -hmm. myth of only using 7% is a complete myth. Um, but, but then we say the, the plumbing problem is there's a blockage, literally. And the, the analogy that seems to help is similar to angina and ischemic heart disease as opposed to an infarct and a heart attack. Right. So when someone has mild cognitive impairment, we say it's almost like brain angina. Saying so your brain is warning you now. That's an interesting way, yeah. But it's not yet dead. Right. And therefore, similar to what happens downstream, what's good for your heart is good for your brain. And all of the risk factors for good heart health are good for brain health. Walking every day is protective, not smoking, not drinking, cognitive stimulation. So we make it physical. The heart as much as a pump easier to grasp. And there might be blockage in the carotid arteries. And similar right upstream, tiny little arterioles, which are microscopic, get, right. get blocked. And then they'll say, oh, the doctor called it TIAs. And then we can talk about a brain scan and say, look at those little white dots. doesn't mean that you... So TIAs, transient ischemic attack. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, transient ischemic <laughs> attack. A mini stroke. Absolutely. Right. And as you, you know, were saying, Ophir, um, there's a lot of jargon that we need to try and yes. not use. But going back to the causes, we've got Alzheimer's vascular, about 10 to 15%. And then the rarer types, Lewy body dementia right. or frontotemporal dementia. Um, much earlier onset under the age of 65. Um, and there's a long shopping list, including in our country, TB, uh, HIV, um, other infectious diseases can cause brain dysfunction. Right. Um, and so these discussions we have to have with patients and families, what we call pre-diagnostic counseling, and then walk them through the diagnostic assessment process and saying we don't make a definitive diagnosis. That's the other important point. We make a, a possible and a probable Right. And that's okay if I don't know because I'm not suffering, thank God, with this. I'm here to help. It's our job to manage the uncertainty and the ambiguity to help you understand that we, there's a probability here. Yes. So we don't try and give false hope. Right. But we say it is possible that what looks like dementia or Alzheimer's is in fact not because now we talk about the pseudo other conditions. Yes, I wanted to touch on that because obviously when the person is referred to you, Yes. They're referred to you for a very specific reason. So there's almost an expectation that there yes. is something going wrong here and I'm going to land up moving in that direction. Absolutely. But the one thing that I've, I've understood is that just because somebody as a professional specializes in a particular area doesn't mean that every person who walks through the door gets a diagnosis. Uh -huh. And I think that what is very important is that cognitive issues are a presenting symptom of a range of conditions. And I think part of the assessment process is to make sure that we're not dealing with what in the old days, I don't know if they still use the term reversible dementia, yeah. Yeah. as opposed to, okay, we've got the beginnings of a process. So, I mean, obviously there, there has to be an assessment procedure that accounts for that, right? Absolutely. And 
So we have to spend a lot of time saying that. Let me explain who I am. I'm a psychiatrist. Right. I'm, I'm the licensed drug dealer. I'm not the psychologist. I'm not the clever one. Okay. And then we joke and spend a lot of time trying to put people at ease. Yes. Because I'm probably the worst and last person that a person wants to see with a cognitive disorder. Because they're terrified of that diagnosis, being placed in frail care mm-hmm. and, and having a, a serious problem. So you say, look, we're just here to try and help if we can. Um, I'm not a neurologist. Yes. I'm not a geriatrician. I'm a specialist in helping mental health problems in older people. And old, for me, unfortunately, is over the age of 50 because we get very young. Well, I think that's what's changing is yeah. that, you know, as, as Bev mentioned, in terms of the spectrum of, of, of age in her group, now we're looking at a group of individuals yes. in their early 50s and we're saying, well, geez, where is the border between mm. adulthood moving from young, middle age to old age? I mean, this is as much as they're saying like 60 is the new 40. Um, I'm not so sure that this is yeah. operating un- under the circumstance. Maybe for yeah. some people, exactly. So, okay, you've got this spectrum of, of, of age. And then, then it's to say, I'm also not a lawyer. I'm not, here, I'm not a priest. Right. Um, we, we can't solve. We get a lot of uh, financial crises, people trying to change the will, sure. asking us mm. to certify that a person is incompetent. Yes. And that occupies a lot of our, our, our time. But a lot of it is about risk management. And probably the most common condition I see is actually stress-related problems or, or existential angst, late-life crisis. So that's interesting. You want to elaborate on that? Sure. So what we mean by angst is not just anxiety. It's, it's a deep panic, a, a dread. And it comes um, from Viktor Frankl, the idea of man's search for meaning after um, Jung and Freud. The existential part is we're the only animals we know that really consider our own existence mm-hmm. and wonder why we're here, where are we going. When people retire... Very few people plan their retirement. They live longer than they expect. And it's remarkable, sorry to jump in yeah. there, as much as we talk about that, nothing changes Mm-mm. in terms of, yeah. you know, is my, is my next phase simply a continuum of my current phase yeah. or is there a line that gets drawn and on this side I'm busy and on that side I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with myself. Sorry, so I just had to no, jump in there. Absolutely. And we know that men do very poorly compared to women in general. And so a risk factor for early death is not working. You're allowed to stop working, but you have to change your job. And you need meaningful work with purpose. Um, Now, that's tricky because society doesn't accommodate for that. The third generation, as it were, University of the Third Age. But there are many examples where people over the age of 50 and indeed 60 have had the most productive, creative time. If you think of artists, Mm. poets, um, creative people. um, Musicians, I mean, going into their 70s Uh, and 80s. you know, you've got all Mick this Jagger. wisdom. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so said that the brain is like a Ferrari up to your 20s. I think he's got the anti-dementia gene. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, he's just he's remarkable amazing. given everything that he's been through. And he performs. Does. You know, so. Keeps going. So, so sorry, I keep jumping no, in. But no, as, as, as I get a thought. No, it's brilliant. And, but, but that's what we try to say to people. Let's have that discussion about healthy aging. Right. Because a lot of the perception I tend to find is that as people get older, they must be dementing. It's normal for me to lose my memory. Right. And a lot of our messages, that's not normal. Okay. If we think of people living in Japan, they used to give the example of villages in Russia, but that's maybe not politically correct <laughs> now. So, so in, that's okay. In, in Europe, people live, but what's common there in China and India is they, they're working. They're in the fields, they're in yes. rural economies, the basic common sense things. Um, so we try and 
demystify a lot of that to say not all of it is a mental illness. Mm-hmm. As you said earlier, um, the brain is, doesn't work well under pressure. Let's look at, as you said, what does pressure in your family look like? You have a CEO who was very high-functioning, who outwardly was doing brilliantly, um, who suddenly is not working, rapidly declines because they're not getting with stress in a high-pressurized environment, going to live in a coastal place, for example, yeah. is not good. So we talk about cognitive stimulation and about how important that is. Um, yeah. So I think the important thing you've mentioned there is, is, is this whole point of purpose. Yes. You touched on Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. And obviously that was in a very specific context. But it's quite interesting because within the, the podcast that I've done, we often go back to Viktor Frankl mm-hmm. okay. actually in terms of, of, of his journey incredible. and the incredible insight. And ultimately what it comes down to is what's your purpose? Do you have meaning? And the extent to which – okay, so maybe here's a question. To what extent would that be protective against cognitive decline? ensuring that you've got continuity of purpose and continuity of, of, of meaning in your life? So at, at a basic level, you need a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Right. If you're not working for a boss or an organization, um, and if you start leading a sedentary lifestyle, we saw that with COVID, with lockdown, where people were not able, were not allowed to leave their property. Right. So now they're stuck in front of a box, a TV, or they're just sitting. And, we, and we, we say, and it is for me helpful, that the brain is like a muscle. You need to use that. Mm. So it's pointless going to gym, just exercising. It's, it's hard maintaining that. Certain people can do that. But if you were planning to run a race, or if you were planning to join a park run, if there was a goal that you were aiming towards, it's so much more meaningful. Um, what we try and use is, is grandchildren and family again mm. to say, um, I use a lot of safari animal analogy. I say, you know, in elephant herds, it's a matriarchal society. Right. Men don't tend to live as long. And you'll, have, you'll often find, you know, the Italian mama caricature with a rolling pin. Yes. You never argue with an Italian mother. <laughs> she's crazy. I mean, Especially if you're the daughter-in-law. No, 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 no. They do in big trouble. I mean, because we get a lot of European uh, patients who've never learned English. Well, pe- people from um, Portugal, for example. Yes who now have cognitive difficulties, but they've lost their sense of vitality and purpose. And they say, Mama, they need you in the family as the matriarch because your grandchildren need to know who you are because you have a narrative legacy that you will leave. And then we say, you know, the elephant in the bush, it's not the male, the males are kicked out. It's the Mama that decides everything. And we try and have that discussion to say we're animals, but we need a purpose to look after our family as well. Um, the problem in a big city and this westernized idea of aging is, a, I think, is a problem. You know? Well, I think this issue of age-constrained social interaction mm. for me is problematic. And again, coming from my background of adolescent psychiatry, I always felt that it was very important for the adolescent to engage with adults, grandparents, not just their parents, but parents, yeah. multi-generational. Yeah. And I think healthier or healthy societies have multi-generational interaction on a regular basis, where there is a constant upward and downward feedback that is taking place between the generations. And I must say, it, it, it always um, makes me very pleased when I see three generations together, grandparents, parents, mm-hmm. children. Everybody's interacting, mm-hmm. and everybody is sharing of, of, of their wisdom and their different perspectives. And I think children grow up far healthier, frankly. That's my personal view with multi-generational interaction. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously when we talk about major and mild 
neurocognitive disorders, mm. and we've sort of teased that out. I think what's important is that there's also the idea that it's all about memory. Now, memory is obviously one aspect mm. of the dementing process of neurocognitive decline, but there's much more to it than that. I mean, there's learning, there's use of language, there's uh, planning and structure and, and, and more complex cognitive um, um, interaction. Also, the idea of independent living. So it's not just your cognitive capacity, but it's how you do things, what you're able to do. So maybe you could just elaborate a little bit more on that. So we call it, unfortunately, the disease or disorder of A's. A is amnesia, which most people understand intuitively, the episodic memory loss of short-term, as you said earlier, forgetting where you put something down. But can you trace your steps back and find it, or do you need someone else to find it? Um, and then long-term memory is preserved longer than, than short-term memory. The other A is aphasia, which right. is a difficulty producing speech or receiving and grasping, understanding speech. Okay. Um, the other one is abulia, or lack of initiation um, in planning. Is that, is that like apathy? Yes. To the, some extent? Op opposite, yes, exactly. exactly. Um, and then um, we, we get to agnosia, which is, is not to know, not being able to recognize objects in your hand or not recognizing someone's face or features, and what we call visuospatial agnosia, the difficulties um, using three-dimensional space. So these, this is important for people who are driving a motor car, who find it on a well-known route, suddenly they get a bit absent-minded and they get a little bit lost, or they lose the car in the shopping center and mm. they need to ask for help. They have a minor accidents, if you like. I've done that in, at an airport. <laughs> Me too. Parked your car that <laughs> Exactly. So you kind of think to yourself, oh, my word, what's happened? Yeah. But, but you solved the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the issue. You, you were sorry. But you touched on something so important. That, that no one's perfect. We're allowed to make – we will make cognitive mistakes. Our brains make cognitive mistakes all the time. Right. That, that's how we grasp reality. But we're, all, we're predicting reality, things we take for granted unconsciously, and then we're adjusting all the time. Um, if it affects what you said now is so important, a level of functioning for mm. basic activities of daily living, yeah. that's, and it's persistent and pervasive. It's there most of the days in different situations. It causes us to stress and then other people to stress. We then say it might be a disorder, might be a disorder, right. which we must now look at. Yeah. I think the important issue for me is the self-awareness and the informant who brings the person. Because how many people present by themselves – Okay. Exactly. Very Where somebody says, geez, you know, I'm, 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 I'm increasingly forgetful. I better go and get this checked out. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that happens. I think mm -hmm. invariably by the time the person comes to you, it's because other people have noticed and they then bring them to you. So you're busy conducting this assessment and we're talking about the person who's the patient. And my question is, to what extent are they present? As in, this is me they're talking about so compared to, you know. There's the so, person who brings them. So important. So we were taught in the UK where they've, not that they're perfect, but they've had more experience doing this. Um, yes. You have to engage the patient first. Right. Regardless of how impaired they may or may not be. Uh, Bev, you'll know this. Mm. If they, they say, don't worry about her, she's got dementia. Yes. And, and this person is sitting there, their eyes are open, but they're not looking up. Right. And so we spend a lot of time with tactile, appropriate contact. Hello, how are you? I make a lot of time using expansive gestures and smiling. I'm quite a big lad, so I must make myself small. <laughs> Connect. And everyone gets offered tea and coffee or water or juice. Right. Can I give you something? How, how are you? So we bring the, the patient is front and foremost. Right. And we deliberately say to the family, 
we like you in this space, mm. unless the patient would ask not to if they're higher functioning. Okay. But we're gonna. St- I'm gonna start talking to your mum or dad or your granny and grandpa first. Yes. And or your partner. Or, or, or your partner. Absolutely. Please don't. And if they start, you say, just give me a moment. Right. I'm gonna come to you now, because they set, must set the tone of the interaction, or mm-hmm. they will not trust you then, at all. And then the common question is. Um, I'll explain who I am. And I said, may I ask a silly question? Why are you here? Right. It's lovely to meet you. And the common response is, I don't know. They brought me. Ask exactly. Them. Exactly <laughs> my point. Yes. And then we say, when I ask them, what do you think they will say to me? Mm-hmm. And they say, I don't know. I'm fine. And so, no, no. And then when you, you, you'll know, obviously, training undergraduates, when you get the interview correct, mm-hmm. you see the shoulders relax a bit when yeah. they realize they're not going to be locked up, when they realize that maybe... You're not, You're not a threat. You're not a threat. So I'd say silly things. You know, the door's not locked. You're welcome to leave. Thank you for not bringing a weapon. Yes. And then we'll laugh. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I must say, you know, when, when I work with my eating disorder sufferers, the initial interview, I always make it very clear. I'm going to give you my opinion. You don't have to agree with me. You can walk out of here and say, this guy's talking the biggest lot of you know what, yeah. and I never want to see him again. And that's okay. Yeah. But I'm going to share with you what I think, and, and, and so I'd like you to be as honest with me as you can so that yeah. I can give you an informed opinion, and then you will decide. And we'll see what we can agree upon, and we'll try to yeah. work from that basis onwards. So aside from the clinical interview, which can be subjective, sure. what about testing, sure. and where do we go from, from, from there? So what, what we do is we've got an online registration form which is not just demographic data. It's actually, it actually starts with subjective rating scales. So you ask people to rate their mood. It's, it's a variant of the geriatric depression scale. These are okay. simple questions. Have you felt low recently? Uh, do you find that you don't um, enjoy activities you used to enjoy, things like anhedonia? So they fill that in online. If they can't do it, we ask the family to help them with that. They rate the activities of daily living. And the process is designed to frame what we're trying to accomplish, right. which is to try and get a picture of how is this person functioning. Not Who are you getting that information from, the sufferer or the family? But both. Right. If it's high-functioning, the sufferer will often do it, but often it's the family. Right. And then they'll say, listen, and say, no, thank you for filling in, it's to get a sense. Then when we start the interview, once we've got permission, because we have to get permission from the patient, we can't just suddenly ask them a whole lot of questions. Yes. We would then do the MMSC, the Mini Mental State Examination, or the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive When you say assessment. ask for permission uh, to be interviewed? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, go, do, would you mind if I checked some of your memory? Okay. Uh, and we need that permission and consent explicitly. And because often they'll say, no, I don't want to, I don't know, and, they, and they'll, they get anxious. Right. You want them to be relaxed. Right. If I, as you said earlier, go through a shopping list of questions, uh, shotgun style, Anyone will just shut down with mm. performance anxiety. Okay. So then we try not to ask leading questions. It's a squad of 30. Um, That's the Montreal c- Cognitive Assessment, the mocker. That's the one that Donald Trump said he got full marks. Yes. <laughs> not sure how Joe Biden would do, but <laughs> which, we're not political. Okay. No, yes. no, can I tell you a quick funny story? Please Let's do. It. So, so when that first came out, you yes. know, there was a lot of psychiatrists who were being saying, this chap maybe has got narcissistic personality disorder. So there was a, the head of the American Psychiatric Association wrote a letter right. saying, please stop giving narcissists a bad name. He's just <laughs> not 
a nice human. <laughs> She's not a narcissist. Um, but no, that was yeah. So the mocker, the mocker is a yes. Is, is, a, is a rating score maximum score is thirty. Yes. Anything below twenty five would be abnormal. Uh, that can be influenced by depression, stress, pain disorders. Um, anything below 20, we begin to worry that there might be a major neurocognitive disorder. Right. So it's not a diagnostic test. It's a screening tool which kind of alerts you in conjunction with a clinical assessment yes. and collateral information yes. as to what you might be dealing with. Absolutely. And then we use something called a visual association test, which is um, six uh, pictures of basic uh, images of a ink pot, a pan, a gorilla. We then show the same six pictures but slightly adjusted with mm -hmm. abnormal images. So the gorilla will be holding an umbrella rather than a, a banana, for example. Right. There'll be a dice in the pan. We then go back to the six pictures and say, this picture of the pan, well, what's missing from it? Mm -hmm. And the patient hasn't been primed, so now they have to remember they saw a dice. That test, uh, it's called the VAT, is more prognostic than an MRI scan. If you score less than 7 out of 12, there's about an 85% chance you've got Alzheimer's. That's fascinating. I mean, that's not intrusive at all. Yeah, you know. It takes five minutes to do. Um, it's, it's, it's unbelievably predictive. Um, so using the marker score plus the VAT, as you said, plus the history, you get a sense of where there might be a cognitive disorder or not. Right. Um, we then repeat the test at six months and a, and a year, and we try and explain. We work out whether they need a brain scan and further tests as well. Okay. Yeah. So my question really is, so you've got this assessment process. It's extensive and it's exhaustive because you want to make sure that you get it right. Yes. At what point do you break the news to the patient, to the family? How does that work? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, and we were taught uh, the case of Bridget Bardot's boyfriend in the 60s mm -hmm. who um, was um, an industrialist in Germany, a wealthy guy. And he had problems with his memory. Um, he was in his 50s, and he was told he had dementia. And he went and shot himself the next day. Wow. And the point was, be very careful what you've just asked. Mm -hmm. When you break the news of the diagnosis, we use words like possible, probable. As you said, I might be wrong. This is my opinion. Mm -hmm. Welcome a second opinion. And let me explain what we can do about this process. Um, and that's what we call post-diagnostic counseling. We set aside specific time with the families, uh, with the patient and the, the most trusted relative or friend. Mm -hmm. We try and use a brain scan to show them their brain and help them understand that they've still got a lot of neurons that do work. And even if it's moderate to severe Alzheimer's, or major neurocognitive disorder, um, there is medication that can slow that down. Right. There's, we can treat depression, anxiety, and we will manage this. And mm -hmm. there are patients that can survive longer than we expect. Mm -hmm. um, once we've explained the diagnosis, that I would say I'm 80% confident, unfortunately, in this diagnosis, mm -hmm. then I would need to talk about prognosis, which is a difficult discussion. Yes. Mm -hmm. So how does one get into that? Because it's, it's, it's almost like I've told you this is the diagnosis. I think most people have a sense of, well, this is inevitably going to lead to decline and dysfunction and what kind of life am I looking at? So we need to go back to the beginning to understand the system there, the person, the personality, their upbringing. Mm -hmm. Every patient needs a detailed life history. We need to know, have, are they aware of what de um, dementia looks like? Did they ever look after someone? What's their attribution of this illness yes. to their value system? 
then we start saying, because often they've had a very bad experience in a nursing home, in a hospital, and now they're, as you say, terrified of death. And we say, look, things have moved on a bit. Let me explain how we try and help here. The median life expectancy is eight years from the time of diagnosis to death. So getting that diagnosis as accurate as possible is very important. If the median is eight years, right. and you're 65, now, you know, you're mid-70s now, and we might be wrong. It's not an average, it's a median, so there's a long tail. Right. Some people can live 20, 25 years with Alzheimer's. Um, and so we try and have a very honest discussion about this to say, um, I might be wrong. I'd be, I'd be delighted if I'm wrong in my diagnosis. Yes. Please prove me wrong. Let me show you how you can do that. Right. How do people generally react? If it's done in a, if there's a safe space with support, sometimes there's relief that there is a name that they're not mad, that they don't, they're not psychotic, mm. that um, there might be help available. Um, unfortunately, a lot of men who are in denial uh, often want to carry on driving. Yeah. Mm. And That's a big issue. Some very aggressive responses. And then my standard thing is in you know, 10 years of private practice, I haven't yet called the traffic police, mm. but there's always a first time. <laughs> right. <laughs> But please don't make me. No, absolutely. Uh, um, and, and we say, look, our job is to, if you cannot guarantee your safety, then someone else has to. Please, can you guarantee your safety? Can you see other people? Can you see an occupational therapist? Have an online on-road driving assessment. Mm. And we go through the mocker. We show them the trail making and the drawing of uh, intersecting pentagons on a clock. Yes. And so if you can't do that, unfortunately, most countries will say you shouldn't really be driving. Please don't drive until we've completed the assessment. Yeah. Um, that, that is probably the most difficult thing. It's mm. tough. I think it's yeah. very tough. Because you're taking away the independence. Exactly. That is yeah. the worst. That's right. Well, Bev, I wanted to bring you in because mm. I've given Ryan a good <laughs> thorough going over. But because I wanted to get into to, to, to treatment, but I'm looking more specifically at the kind of offering that you've mentioned. Because I think that as much as we focus on the sufferer, we're looking at the family. And I think one of the things that you've specifically highlighted is respite for the carers. carers yeah. So what is your experience of the carers? Because, I, I, I mean, I, th I think one of the issues is that the carer becomes everything. And alone time for the carer and time for them to actually just recharge their own batteries. batteries. How do you work with that? So, I mean, a lot of them do come with carers. Some of them come on their own. Their families just drop them, but they still kind of have functioning, so they're able to. Sorry, when you say drop them, they leave, they them, leave them as opposed to drop so, them. I mean, you know, they bring them, right. bring them in, we settle them, and they come back and fetch them right. later. Okay. But lots of them come with their carers. And the carers, what we've discovered, if we put the carers we've made, it's like a safe space for them outside. They sit right. together and they discuss all their problems. It's actually been an, an amazing tool for them. We had an incident, well, not an incident, an, an experience, must have been just before COVID, that one of the carers got engaged. Right. And she mentioned it to all the other carers that we were with her. There was such excitement that the next week they all arrived with a present for her. Wonderful. Yeah. So, um, Because I'm thinking of your support group is focused on the sufferer, but it sounds to me like there needs to be a support group for the caregiver. carers. So what I've done prior to COVID, um, Kim Levitt, who I've done a lot of work with, she's, she's an OT and she runs a practice. She actually came to give them a lot of practical advice. And funny enough, I was just discussing it with her the other evening. Mm -hmm. She said she needs to come and do something like that again. Because I think they just do need to um, 
to be brought up to speed, you know, as, as to what is going on and what they can do to help and things like that. A lot of them even ask after they leave a session with me, haven't I got some ex- extra activities to take home right. that, you can, that they can actually work? Because a lot of them live with these, these people 24-7. Well, I think that's the issue really. What is the, what is the continuity between what you offer and what takes place in the home environment? And that's where the caregiver comes in. Absolutely. In terms of equipping and empowering, because I think very often the caregivers feel disempowered. Absolutely. I think one of the issues that has been mentioned to me um, was the fact that they need to go to YouTube to access information. And, and, and as I was saying earlier with, with, with Ryan off, offline, if somebody needs to go to YouTube and is looking for information, then my suspicion is you haven't connected with the right professional. Right. I, I, I don't know if I'm being harsh in, in, in that sense, and maybe some people are just more naturally inquisitive and they want as much information as possible, which I think can also be a problem. Too much information, too many different opinions, very confusing yeah. potentially. But the issue of continuity and involvement with caregivers to build on whatever it might be that you do, what's your approach there? So, no, we haven't really, I've done more with the participants right. or the patients than I have actually with the carers. But, um, uh, we, we, we try and call them into the, actually to the, into the mornings at the end, especially when we're playing music. They'll come in and they'll dance with their partners and they'll just have a fun time. I, I, I know from a couple of weeks ago that one lady was really going through a lot of stress at the home that she was, where she was living. She lives privately with, with, this, with her patient and she, she was really not being treated well. So she came to talk to me about it. Mm. So that's the kind of relationship that I'm having with the carers. Lots of the carers, when, they, when their patients pass away, they often phone me for referrals. Can I please find them another job? Okay. Which um, which I I just wish I could just wave a magic wand and find one for them because sure. I, I just can't always. But you raised a, an issue offline with with me about the the downfalls in the system of senior care, and so what were you referring to there? Because you've obviously got concerns about how our senior citizens, our older adults in our communities, are actually taken care of. Yeah. So a lot of them was with those those are are the ones in private homes. Right. When the the families are trying to get hold of the doctors and they can't get hold of the doctors to get a, a script renewed or something like that or just, just to speak to them about what's going on with their patients or with their family member. And they find it very difficult to get hold of the doctor in question. Mm. And we, if we're kind of wondering, isn't there not a, a way we can kind of do that? Do maybe you guys have a um, an assistant that could phone them up and say, look, here's your script. Don't worry. This is what's happening. I just found there's like a, a gap. A gap. Yeah. And I think that is a problem, actually. Mm. Now, just in terms of families, I mean, and, and Ryan, you can jump in as well. I mean, denial and the reluctance to get involved. I mean, is that an issue? Because I, I'm, I'm concerned about abandonment and people just sort of pulling back and saying, well, you know. I can't get involved in this. So it was interesting because I was telling Ryan earlier on, um, I had a call yesterday from a, from somebody that I happen to know whose wife's got dementia. Hmm. And I know she has been sitting at home all these years doing absolutely nothing. So I said to him, why don't you let her come to our group? No, she can't do anything. I said, who said she can't do anything? Please just let her come along. And honestly, let's try and see what we can do just to, to make her day a little bit happier. And, and I, I think just, that's, that's what I'm trying to do, honestly. Ryan? Yeah, it's a massive problem. I mean, everything you've said, especially the gaps, and, and I'm embarrassed to say getting hold of the doctor. I was immediately thinking, cheapers. I hope, I hope people can get hold of me. And I mean, we work really hard at trying to make ourselves more accessible. And just quickly, the idea of a clinical assistant doing scripts, mm. there are 
some interesting spaces there. It's quite complicated in mm. private healthcare, certainly, and in governments, it's big challenges. But that's something we have to really look at. Um, the one thing I just wanted to say, it's about grief, this space. It's mm. about the grief of people dying and about to die. And unfortunately, one of the descriptions of dementia was, you know, a living death. Right. I mean, you said living with dementia or living, you know, there are different, um, more helpful words. Um, and again, going back to Frankel, you know, um, he's obviously one of my heroes in life, but, yeah. you know, he would start the opposite and say, for him, there were only two important questions, which the first was, if you could choose an age when you died without jinxing it, some societies don't want to speak about mental illness for fear of bringing it on and stuff. How old would you want to be when you died? You know, someone 65, they might say, I don't know, 80, 85. It's okay. So you're giving us 20, 30 years. Hopefully God's listening. Yeah. The second and only important question is, have you been a good member of the human race? Yes or no? And people look at you a bit funny. And so what do you, well, list of what is good and what is well, relative to, you know, Hitler, Stalin, people. Yes. Are you a good person? Say, yeah, I'm not a bad person. What evidence do we have for that? Well, how many people have you recently killed? How many people do you plot the you know, destruction of? No, I've done this. Okay. So Frankel would say, you've got 20 years to carry on doing good. And if you answered, no, I feel guilty about things. I've done that or not so good. Okay, you've got 20 years to make peace. Hmm. And so he looks at the end back in rather than from now looking forward, which is a, a want. And that speaks to quality of life and existence. And the idea that we are born to die, to be blunt, but going back to meaning, what are we going to do with this time? So if I said you've got eight years left to live, once you get, it's about the grief of understanding that you've lost the death of your former healthy self. Mm. And you spoke about family being in denial and those classic defense mechanisms of grief, of shock, denial, um, uh, bargaining yes. behavior, etc. Depression. Acceptance. Except we see all of that. And, and it's, it, it, it can last months, years. It can go in different orders. And so a lot of it is explaining to families those processes are unfortunately predictable. And anger. Um, yeah. Anger. And, and I think that is, that is key. It's, it, it's getting the families involved. Yeah. So I think part of the problem often is that maybe you're dealing with families that were never particularly connected to start with. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly there's a crisis. And exactly. so all that happens is the exacerbation of what was just becomes yeah. more pronounced. Absolutely. And so, you know, again, coming back to living with, it's not just about the sufferer, it's about the extended support system. And who can you mobilize? And how do you bring people yeah. into the picture who don't really want to be there? Because I think yeah. that's a problem. And I also think financial. Financial is a Absolutely. very big issue. Yeah. Okay, elaborate. You know, I know, even from our groups, and we really don't charge an absolute fortune, but mm. they would love them to come. But if they come on a Tuesday, they've got to get a lift, and then they've got to pay for it, and they've got to get a lift home. It kind of all, it all mounts up. So it's about sacrifice, sacrifice as well? Sacrifice as well, absolutely. Yeah. So is it, are we living in a selfish time? Some people are yes. really willing and yes. able yes. and keen so without, to do it. Without being judgmental. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to... But to, there are those that yes. are not, not... So how do you engage with those kind of situations? So, so never waste a good crisis. Um, yeah. It's bloody difficult to make peace with a corpse. Right. Mm -hmm. We're not going to fix your decade-long family feud and rift. But if you're willing, we invite people. We, we have to create a safe space. Right. And I say, would you get permission, consent? Do you mind if I invite your relative? No, don't invite that one. She's not to be trusted. She's after the money. So, whoa, they have a right to know. 
um, I work for the patient. I don't work for you with yes. respect, and we have to earn that right. We do mediation, actually. The family meeting is mediation. Uh-huh. Okay. And we say, right, let's agree on the rules beforehand. This is not a court case. I'm, we, I'm here to help. The door's open. If you feel offended, you're welcome to leave. I'm recording it for my own records. Um, this is private. You reserve all your rights. Yeah. We're just going to, as you said, going to give you an opinion and available for you to ask questions. We, the, the problem is often it's the youngest child that gets left holding the can, and they then get dumped on, and they caregiver burden, caregiver burnout, and then it's the seagulls from overseas that come in and make a mess and fly off. Yeah. And have Everybody's got an opinion, but nobody wants to get their hands and dirty. Absolutely. And, and you say, well, if, if, if you really think that strongly, we'll send your mother to you in New York. 100%, exactly. Because <laughs> they, they, they're on YouTube. They've got a friend of a friend who says you must do this and all that. And what, what, the, the Zoom idea, though, with, with COVID, what has helped is now we have – I had a meeting the other day in the basement of Alberton where the reception's not great – Family in Australia, England, America, right, which is so helpful. Mm. And then we could see people, mm-hmm. and we could set the tone and say, "Look, let's we can make time for you to ask questions." Some people are very embarrassed, or terrified. Please email me; we can try and engage with you. But you know, prof, one of the big problems in private healthcare is you don't get paid to do this. To be blunt, yeah, and you know, it's it's a problem. And yeah. that's, there's a much bigger story there. Mm. And I think that's important. But you know what? What's really struck me is this concept of loss because I think that one is not necessarily thinking I mean one thinks of death loss okay here we're talking about the loss of self the loss of a former self the loss of a person who represented something in your life and suddenly they're not that person anymore so psychologically how does that impact on a caregiver Bev do you you have any insight into that and Ryan so I, I think if, if it's, we must say in South Africa, most of the carers I engage with um, are, are African. Yes. Who are, haven't had the opportunity to go to school. And the best carer, in my view, is someone that cares. Mm. Has the empathy. Has empathy. Passion. The knowledge Passion. of the person. Knowledge yeah. and has common sense and, can, and is willing to learn. Um, it's, for a lot of carers, it's a crucial job, which Absolutely. is a, they need that job. Um, one of the things the Alzheimer's Association in the UK do is they've got a fantastic leaflet called This Is Me. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, um, I'll just a brief example. We had a, a guy who grew up in the apartheid area. He was an apartheid policeman who started to dement and he was drinking. We admitted him for detox and, as luck would have it, in the bed next to him was an ANC member of parliament who was also dementing with alcohol. Okay. And both, you know, this guy was racist, unfortunately. And the people were like, and you can predict what happened. They right. ended up being best friends when they left. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you take a carer that's from a different culture, that speaks a different language, we're expecting them to speak in English, generally. We're expecting them to understand a very yeah. complex disorder. So the This Is Me is a photograph of the carer and the patient that says, my name is the patient, my name is Joe, for example. I like to be called this. I don't like to be called Sweetie. Right. I was born here. My, I'm important because... Dot, dot, dot. We had a guy who was on the Bismarck. Okay. Uh, he sunk the Bismarck, rather, right. on the hood. And most people don't know what the Bismarck is in World War II. So we try to create points where people can get to know, almost like sort of matchmaking. So, so what I'm understanding is that, and, and maybe that speaks to your earlier issue around standards of care in the country, how do you equip a caregiver yeah. who is not a family member, or even a family member, yeah. to, 
How, because at the end of the day, I might be a father, I might be a spouse, I'm not a caregiver yeah. in that sense. Now right. suddenly I've got to take on a completely different role. How do you equip the caregiver, be they professional or within the family, to take on that role? I mean, that, that's your bread and butter I yeah. think, in terms of uh, you're dealing with patients, and, and, but carers are, by definition, part of that system. Um, I, I think part of it is understanding, does the person, are they, are they willing to be the carer or have right. they been forced? Um, because, some, as you said, some people are naturally inquisitive. More often than not, they don't have a choice. That They are it. They, there's no one else there, whether they're spouse or brother, sister, whatever, extended family. Um, Part of it is reaching out and, and we do a caregiver assessment. So we say, although you've brought this person as the patient, part of my job is to understand what are you going through. So it's not that uncommon for me to prescribe antidepressant for a caregiver. Right. Um, in confidence, obviously, or to refer them to someone else. We, we have the luxury of clinical psychologists and, and occupational therapists, and we'll often ask the caregiver who might be grieving to see someone. It doesn't have mm. to be a clinical psychologist. Mm. could be a therapist. could be a lay member at the church. Sure. Um, but to, more often than not, it's just finding time and actually asking. And then people are very appreciative that someone actually cares and is willing to try. And I think that's where you uh, come yeah, in there. I was just going to say, that's yeah, one yeah. thing that we really try and do. We'll go out and say, any issues exactly. today? Exactly. Can we help you with anything? Yes. How's your week been? Right, which I think is very important. Very important. They're, they're human. You know what? We also have to look after them because they look, who, look, look, look who they are looking after. I was made and, I, and sometimes I just hope the families are aware of that because yes. sometimes they put a lot of trust in these people. Right. I mean, I see a lot of people that they live with their carer, they live with their patient at home. It's just the patient and the carer. Right. And they're with them sometimes 24-7. Right. And I just I hope the families actually appreciate what these carers are doing for the patients. Appreciate the burden. But I was actually made aware some years ago of a, the system in New Zealand, actually, and I stand under correction, but this is what was related to me, was that the New Zealand government gives two weeks paid holiday to the family members who are caregivers. Mm. Wow. Precisely to alleviate the burden, and then they send in professional caregivers to 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 compensate. Yeah. So you were asking about standards of care and and, and how do we care? I mean, that's I one so, that's South one situation. South that I'm Africa's aware of. got a lot to learn. We, really. we we don't have that, but and you've hit exactly what I wanted to say that the caregiver burnout. No one plans to pay for caregivers, really. Yes, and suddenly the cost is four thousand rand plus a month right. after tax money retirement pension you have to find to pay for someone um so those people will work often seven days a week but they need a break correct so now you need two or three caregivers so the cost of keeping someone at home mm. versus what we call placement eventually becomes cheaper and of or necessary necessity yes. to place people right and that is the next very very difficult discussion because mm. most patients are terrified of that absolutely and now we have a we actually have a legal framework where we're not allowed to do just because the family asks us. Even though the irony is they've brought the patient, we've got the older persons act, the mental health care act. We actually have to respect a person's decision making process. Yes. Even if they've got dementia. We have to actually ask them, where would you like to go if this happened? We don't have a living will system, but part of administratorship, curatorship, and the medical legal aspects yes. is something we really have to work hard on. Um, and that's something that you've got to be sensitive to as a professional. Yes. This whole notion of also home-based care, residential care, legal rights. 
How often person. get asked that question? Do you think yeah. I should still keep my family member at home, or do you think I should put them into to another you know, into retirement? And the guilt is overwhelming. Terrible. It's, I mean, I've been through it myself, so yes, I can really talk from from the heart. No, no, absolutely. It. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's a difficult it's decision, but I suppose one has to look at uh, resources. You're going to look at the circumstances of the sufferer's existence to say, well, what is in their best interests, yes. you know, based on your assessment. I'm going to ask a, a last question, which is, I don't know that it's a question commonly asked, and it's the question of physical intimacy. If you have a partner who starts to dement, what happens there? Because you're dealing with an individual who is no longer that person. They may still have needs, physical needs, you are now their partner, but you're looking at them differently because they've become someone who they weren't. And so how do you reconcile that? Or is that even something that's ever discussed or raised? We, we don't deal with that at all enough. I think um, by the time we see most patients, unfortunately, they've got established dementia. Right. And sexual functioning isn't uh, one of the main reasons they've come. It's, it's because of driving risk or... Sure other problems but what it, there are patients with mild cognitive impairments often that <laughs> are functioning independently um, who the mild cognitive impairment is a risk factor for dementia and we'll say there are ways to reduce the risk of the mild cognitive impairment becoming dementia for example we know approximately 15% of mild cognitive impairments convert to dementia over a year yes. which means 85% don't so what is the 85% doing, if you like, in general? One of them is, is healthy exercise, healthy living, eating, nutrition, and a healthy sex life. Okay. So it's an important component, and it's an important consideration. It is an important consideration. And, and it goes back to consent, which is a problem. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, we've had tricky stories of people placed in nursing homes or retirement villages where they will go wandering. Mm. And, and one of the ethical dilemmas um, I don't know the answer to is is if you've got a, two people with dementia who are not family, right? who now are in love and he misidentifies her as his wife and she misidentifies him as a husband. Okay. We had one recently and then she had, went and saw another fella and he got violent because now she was two-timing him. Wow. Now we have to talk to both families and say, is it okay that they sit and hold hands? It's definitely not okay that they share a bed together. Um, and so it gets quite complicated. Well, I think what we're understanding is that when we speak about these conditions, it mm -hmm. operates at so many levels mm -hmm. and there is so much that we need to consider. But we've kind of come to the end of our time and I know that we could go on. But Ryan, Bev, I want to thank you for sharing of your time, knowledge and experience. And it, it's really good to know that there is compassionate care available. And I think that at the end of the day, um, Ending on a more positive note, saying, well, you know, 15% might convert from mild to major, which means 85% don't. Mm -hmm. And there are things that you can do to forestall that. But while you are able to do things, you've got to live fully. And I think that's really what it comes down to. Um, I just want to quote from a poem, Be Kind, by Charles Bukowski, where he writes about age. But age is the total of our doing. So I think we just need to reflect on what our doing is during our age so that we have a life that is as fulfilling and meaningful as, as possible. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of BRAVE.